Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. This is the podcast where we pick two breaking scientific studies every week. We put them in context, we explain what happened, what the scientists did, why they did it, and most importantly, why it matters. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, Mood Makers, a new way to grow serotonin neurons in the lab. And the spice of life. Does eating spicy food make you live longer? Jesse, why don't you start us off? Okay. What do obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety, autism, and eating disorders have in common? I would think a lot, and I would think they all kind of suck. (laughs) Yeah, they're all pretty brutal conditions. Yeah. And in fact, they're all not very well understood. Okay. And they also all involve the brain's serotonin systems. Right. Gotcha. So the serotonin system in the brain has been really difficult to study. Okay. Because studying it in patients can be really dangerous because we don't want to screw with their natural balances too much. Right. For fear of what might happen. Yeah. And the important cells, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which are the serotonin neurons are located deep in the brain, and we it, they're difficult to study because getting at them is hugely invasive for every patient. Right, I assume you have to, do you have to cut their brain open? Is it brain surgery? Yeah, to, like, if you want to get things? at those cells, you actually have to go into the brain and get them. Wow, okay. Right? And that's not, that's not an easy biopsy. No, I believe that. So this is an exciting study because it's the first time scientists have found a way to grow these serotonergic neurons in a lab setting. Okay, like outside of a body. Yes. Wow. So... Scientists at the University of Buffalo have found a way to convert human lung fibroblasts, which are connective tissue cells, into these serotonin neurons. And as it turns out, harvesting lung cells is way easier than harvesting deep brain cells. Okay. So these neurons, these serotonin neurons, are the Mm -hmm. ones that produce and have the receptors that bind to serotonin. Okay. Uh, And we're now able to grow them in a Petri dish. That's exciting. So let's talk a bit about serotonin, because I've mentioned it a bunch and we haven't done our usual thing of, hey, what's serotonin? So yeah, let's do that now. Let's make that happen. Um, do you know what serotonin is? I, I'll be honest, not entirely. What I think of it as is a chemical that makes people feel good. Sort of. Uh, is that is that wrong? That's yeah. kind of what most people know about serotonin. It's a very yeah. general bit of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually way more complex than that. It's it's a neurotransmitter. So you're right, it is a chemical. Okay. Uh, a neurotransmitter is something, uh, usually a chemical, that transmits signals between our nerve cells, which are neurons. Right. Uh, we, we mostly tend to associate serotonin with the brain when we talk about it. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, 90% of the body's serotonin is located in the GI tract. Really? Yeah. It's used a lot to regulate intestinal movement. Huh. And I had no idea. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk about serotonin in the brain today, which is what's related okay. to a lot of those conditions I mentioned at the beginning, like depression, autism, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. But yeah. it's worth noting just while we're at this point that uh, the fact that there's so much serotonin related to gut movement mm-hmm. is why there's a lot of research right now into the relationships between the GI tract and depression related disorders. Oh, because I've heard of those links before. Yeah. So that's, I that's have no w- idea. That's why. Yeah. Okay. That's the basis for a lot of this research is that the same neurotransmitter is involved in both mood related brain stuff and basic and moving stuff through regulation. your system stuff. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Okay. So that's cool. a cool little tidbit. That's really good to know. Yeah. So in the brain though, serotonin is produced by these neurons where it essentially mm-hmm. hangs out in the synapse, which is the space between the neurons. Okay. And that's that 
that's where it's effective. And that's when we talk about you having a certain amount of serotonin in your brain at any given time. That's the active stuff. That's the stuff that's in the synapse. So this is just the gap between two cells. Exactly. That's where it's okay. performing its its neurotransmitter function of transferring a signal, basically sending okay. a message. Yeah. Uh, and then after a while, like any neurotransmitter, it undergoes something called reuptake, where it's reabsorbed after it's performed its function of transmitting that neural impulse, that message. Okay. Reabsorbed into the into the neurons. Right. So the amount of serotonin in your brain at any given time has huge effect on mood, memory, inhibition, learning, appetite, sleep, and even um, sex drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually not very well understood still. Okay. Partially because it's been really hard to test the serotonin systems in our brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing we do know is that it seems to regulate the intensity of moods. Okay. A lot of this we actually understand from the effects that certain drugs have on our brains. Mm-hmm. So some of the most common everyday things you might have heard of that affect the serotonin levels in your brain are some drugs. Like, for example, SSRIs you may have heard of. Right. I have, absolutely have. Yeah. These are the most common current class of antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Uh, SSRIs are, and SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. Okay. And that's, that sounds like a big phrase, but if we move through it, you know, in order of looking at each word, selective serotonin, it's picking out only serotonin. Okay. Reuptake inhibitor means it inhibits, it oh. prevents the reuptake, which we just talked about, which is that reabsorption. Yeah. So the way SSRIs work is that they prevent your brain from reabsorbing the serotonin that's already been released. Right. The idea being that this sort there's of... There's more... Yeah. Yeah, there's more there. It stabilizes the amount of serotonin in your brain. Right. So there's more outside the cells between the cells. Exactly. Because the cells aren't reabsorbing it. So yes. then it can be more effective. Yeah. Okay. And this is based on the premise that uh, conditions like depression and anxiety are partially caused by low levels of serotonin in the brain. Okay. And... This is actually very controversial. We won't get into it here, but a lot of studies recently have been really poking a lot of holes in this theory and suggesting that a lot more research is needed on whether that's actually what's causing depression and whether these SSRIs are actually doing more harm than good. Oh, interesting. So maybe we move too fast on the SSRIs. Uh, yeah, it's starting to look like that's the case. And hopefully really? we'll have a okay. chance to do one of talk about one of these studies in the near future. All right. Interesting. Cool. Um, a lot of recreational drugs target the serotonin systems as well. Right. So, for instance, the, mo- the most commonly known one is MDMA, which is the active ingredient in ecstasy. Yeah. Uh, And it works by releasing serotonin from the neurons, which floods the brain with the stuff. Okay, so the SSRIs prevent reuptake, and MDMA causes the cells to lose it. Exactly. Expel it. Yeah, so the SSRIs won't cause you to release more serotonin, but they'll stop you from reabsorbing it. Yeah. Whereas drugs like MDMA cause Mm -hmm. you to just release a ton of serotonin. Okay. And in fact... There, there's an issue where if if people are on an SSRI and they mm-hmm. ingest a drug like MDMA, mm-hmm. those two things will oh. they'll combine in a really negative way where they're releasing right. a ton of serotonin and they're not able to reabsorb it because of the SSRI. So they experience something called serotonin syndrome, which is when there's too much serotonin in the brain, which is really dangerous. Oh, what what does that do? Um, I mean, worst case, it can cause death. Ooh, okay. Yeah. It basically your your nervous system starts to experience a bunch of strange symptoms and things start to shut down it's really bad okay um, it can cause seizures uh, 
right. uh, okay. and worst case death. Yeah. Interestingly, some other recreational drugs like magic mushrooms, DMT, and LSD are mm-hmm. what's called agonists for the serotonin receptors, which means they bind to the receptors in our brain that are designed for serotonin, essentially tricking the brain into thinking that there's oh. more serotonin than there is. Mimicking the exactly. serotonin the brain's looking for. Yeah. So that gives a similar response to having increased levels. Okay. And that's one of the ways that those work. MDMA, which releases a ton of extra serotonin, mm-hmm. can actually tell us a little bit about what the serotonin system does because this huge increase of serotonin causes effects such as extreme euphoria and a feeling of empathy and connectedness to others. So that's definitely something that the serotonin system is involved with. Right. Interesting. That's a data point for figuring out what it does. Totally. Yeah. MDMA is also being tested right now in the treatment of a lot of depression-related disorders as well as PTSD. There's some really promising studies there. Hmm. It can also reduce sex drive by increasing the amount of serotonin unlike everyone's favorite drug, alcohol. This is an interesting fact that I didn't realize, but alcohol actually reduces the level of serotonin in your brain slightly which is thought to be related to why people tend to lose inhibition and have increased sex drive so low levels of serotonin are associated with a higher sex drive and high levels of serotonin are associated with a lower sex drive interesting yeah okay so it's, it's actually surprising how much what we know about serotonin comes from its interactions with other chemicals that can go into our body. Yeah. Hmm. All this to say that research into the serotonin system is super interesting, and it's got huge implications for neuroscience and treatment of a lot of these neurological conditions. Absolutely. Right? We, it's, this is clearly something that we should be learning a lot about because it could have huge ranging implications for what we know about medicine. Mm-hmm. So back to the study. Now that we've done yeah. our our little backstory. Um, How did these researchers create these serotonin neurons? Yeah. Well, just like what we talked about last week, it's genetic engineering. Woo! (laughs) Yeah. They introduced these four specific genes to the fibroblasts that they got from the lungs. Mm -hmm. And those specific genes control the development of serotonin neurons. Okay. Introducing these genes to the fibroblast basically caused mm. these fibroblasts to switch from a lung cell to a serotonin neuron. That's kind of incredible. Yeah, the process takes a couple yeah. days and it actually yeah. changed the physical appearance of the cell. It's really cool. It's this total transformation. Wow. All right. After 12 days, they found that 24% of the cells had converted to serotonin neurons. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's not bad at all. And they're working on trying to do this with skin cells, which would be even easier to extract. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea there is that we can extract skin cells or lung cells from individual patients and test exactly how their neurons with their DNA will respond to certain drugs and treatments. Oh, so we're thinking that the response of serotonin is somehow dictated by DNA and genetics and not just by how your brain chemistry is right now. Well, it it could be a huge number of different things. And the problem is it's really hard to pull those variables out. Right. And we're moving towards this era. A couple studies that we've done in the last couple months have have been along this vein where we're moving towards this age where medicine is very personalized, Mm -hmm. where you're not just going to be getting a drug that tends to work on your condition that you have. Mm -hmm. You're getting a drug that has been tested with your actual DNA and your cells. Yeah. And we know will have a specific effect. Absolutely. Okay. So that's, that's the basic idea here is that we can test, we can start to, for the first time, really test human serotonin neurons and find out how they respond to different treatments and drugs right and how that affects their release and reuptake of serotonin yeah that's fascinating have we done anything in the past in terms of tests of serotonin neurons outside the body we've done a lot of tests of the serotonin system in mice and rats okay um but there hasn't been a lot of lab like just petri dish testing of of neuron right because it's been really hard to get these neurons before exactly okay that makes sense 
So yeah, I mean, it's like th- this technique shows promise as well for generating other types of cells that are hard to get yeah. at. Yeah. Right now, if we want to test this sort of personalized medicine thing, if we want to test specific tissues responses to to certain drugs and chemicals, we've got to mm-hmm. go in there and extract those. Yeah. Whereas with this technique, with a little bit of adaptation and changing which genes are added, you know, it's theoretically possible that we'll be able to create normally difficult to access cells in the lab, like heart cells and other neuron cells. It sounds similar to stem cell research. In a, in a way, it's, yes. It's interesting that you don't need stem cells for it. Yeah, it's kind of a different approach to the same thing in a way. Yeah. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we, they just basically need to find the right combination of genes to add. Absolutely. Yeah. Which I'm guessing is probably not trivial, but... No, not at all. It's possible, as we can see. No, it's really complicated. But, you know, yeah. with time, I think we'll be able to figure out a lot of the sort of, you know, magic magic combinations of genes to add. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, this this study is like, you know, we've talked a bit about really what serotonin is and, and how it's related to a lot of conditions it's really not hugely well understood still and yeah one of the hopes here is that we'll be able to start understanding what its effect really is i hope we can because honestly like all of that brain chemistry stuff it terrifies me it is totally terrifying to to put it in yeah just like my own personal view (laughs) of it the idea that my mood and my view of the world is fundamentally controlled by chemicals in my brain that yeah. i may not necessarily have control over yeah that is a freaky thought it's totally freaky and the idea that you can um through certain like drugs or compounds or behaviors change the levels of these compounds and have that drastically affect like your worldview and how happy you are and things like that like that's mm-hmm. it's 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 scary in a way yeah <laughs> or that you could do damage to that system totally yeah the, yeah, the idea it, of damaging that system is really terrifying because yeah you know, a- abuse of a lot of the drugs that release serotonin is known to lead to long-term depression and sometimes suicide in people. Yeah. Wow. So That's... it's not something we should tread lightly. No, in. not at all. Um, I found there's a, a funny little side note I found while researching this. Sure. Which is that uh, it's been shown that serotonin depletion can occur in people who recently have fallen in love. Really? Yeah. That falling in love in the early yeah. stages reduces the amount of serotonin in your brain. And the okay. thinking, the hypothesis, which okay. has yet to be properly tested. Is that yeah. that's partially what leads to this sort of obsessive component of early relationships and early stages of love. And also the possibly yeah. higher sex drive that people in early stages of relationships when they're just falling right. in love tend to experience. Because as we talked about earlier, that lower yeah. level of serotonin seems to be associated with a higher sex higher drive. Higher sex drive. So huh. another interesting, interesting. interesting idea there. That is very yeah. interesting. Yeah. I have I have one question for you, actually. Totally. That I saw something in the actual paper, the published paper, that I hadn't seen before, which I thought was kind of cool. Which okay. was there was a section in the paper that was called conflict of interest yeah and it said the <laughs> authors declare no conflict of interest i'd never seen that before yeah. medical studies usually have it okay i, I hadn't um, noticed it before that's a common it's, thing it's then? usually in incredibly fine print uh-huh. most theses require like i had to do that for my thesis okay that i just submitted um most medical journals have it somewhere some other journals do interesting uh and it's usually quite small i've seen i like i've seen it in weird places i've seen it in geology papers before <laughs> cool um, which, I mean, it, it can sometimes be important. I've also seen the opposite. I've seen conflict of interest statements that declare conflicts of interest. I guess it's good to know, uh, right? We got, we got funding from so-and-so who does, makes this drug or whatever. Cool. But, yeah, they're very interesting, aren't they? It's good. I like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'd like to see that more, actually. I agree with that. Although you're relying on them to self-report conflicts of interest, so. You really are. And that, <laughs> that always works. 
Um, (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Thinking about it, that is in itself a conflict of interest. That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) The self-reporting of conflicts of interest is a conflict of interest. Okay. Well, should we move on? Very cool. Let's do it. Every week, we dig through a ton of studies to find the two that we present to you. Now, some of those studies are really interesting. So we're going to try this new little segment in the middle here, which can give you some headlines and some very brief details about a couple of studies. Then we've got links to more information, more articles, on our website, doubleblindscience.com. So if they pique your interest, check them out. So one cool study that came out last week is about people's color perception, how we see different colors. Okay. And the study basically found a couple of cool things. One was that people of different cultures tend to have different ideas of what a pure color looks like, which means that when given the ability to dial in on a dial levels of certain colors until they hit something like pure blue, people Mm -hmm. of different cultures had different pure blues. See different pure blues. Interesting. And the the ones that had pure colors that people uh, didn't seem to think involved adding certain bits of other colors were green, yellow, blue, and red, mm-hmm. which corresponds with the the color sensors we have in our eyes. Mm-hmm. But the really funny part of the study is that it also found that people tend to have different perceptions of what the pure version of a color is between summer and winter. Oh, yeah. Seasonally it changes. Seasonally. So they were they were given the same test in July and January mm-hmm. and it was found that they had a different sense of what pure yellow was between those different seasons pretty consistently. And so the idea there is that interesting. They're actually adjusting for the average color temperature outside based on how the season changes. Oh. Yeah. That's I, awesome. I thought it was pretty cool. We do that on huh. on cameras, right? We do a white balance. Yeah. And it uh, looks like the human human eye and brain are doing the same thing. Interesting. Yeah. An ancient river delta on Mars has been chosen as so far the leading candidate for the 2020 rover mission. So it's not finalized yet, but it's currently the forefront in the votes of among scientists to get votes. Oh, cool. The hope is that since rivers concentrate organic matter on Earth in deltas, they may have once done the same thing in Mars. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, so uh, cool. you can read more about those on our website if you're interested. DoubleBlindScience.com Okay, so Lucas, I believe it is your turn. Thanks, Jesse. So this is a study which has received a lot of media attention recently. The New York Times wrote an article about it, and the first, first study I saw was making the rounds on Facebook. The headline was, Study finds people who eat more spicy foods have a reduced risk of premature death. Wow. That was from mike.com which is you know something you want to reduce the risk of (laughs) premature death that is no fun yeah not at all so it's been receiving a lot of attention and the lead author has been doing interviews with all of these you know media outlets and okay has pretty much been saying that people should eat more spicy food. Okay. And, I mean, we've often, on Double Blind, dealt with the question of, does correlation equal causation? Mm -hmm. And I was very curious about that for this one, so I thought I'd take a closer look. Right. So I dug into the study, and first of all, the first thing that just struck me was the sample size. Mm -hmm. And usually in studies like this, we're just struck that the sample sizes are so small this one i was surprised at how big it was okay half a million people holy cow they looked at five hundred thousand people how did the where did the where did the data come from china surveys or yeah so it came from (laughs) so what they did 
<laughs> is they found a half a million people yeah. from all over China, okay. ages 30 to 79, right? and they completed a brief questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And on this questionnaire was a couple questions about their consumption of spicy food. Right. So they asked them, how many days a week do you consume spicy food? Mm-hmm. And they asked them, what is your primary source of spice? Okay. They really only looked at chili because that's the main source of spice in Chinese cooking. Yep. But they did ask if you had fresh chilies, dried chilies, chili oil, or something different. Okay. And then during the course of the study, which was about seven years, they looked at a smaller group of people, 1,300, and they resurveyed them uh, every year and a half to see if their spice intake was constant or okay. if it changed. Sure. And they found it was generally pretty constant. Right. So that that, the, that was just to find out whether, in general, people had consistent. Yeah, exactly. Of instead of time. instead of resurveying half a million people, they just randomly picked 1,300. Cool. And then resurveyed them. Right. And I mean, in addition to this, they also asked this half a million group of people a number of questions about their health and lifestyle. Right. Age, sex, education, occupation, income, marital status, consumption of alcohol, tobacco, physical activity, diet, mm. medical history, all sorts of so stuff. That's just to control for those other variables. That's the idea. Right. Just in case exactly. people who tend to eat spicy food also tend to lead riskier lives or something. Precisely. Right. Which is, as we'll get into, this is the point that this study rests on. Okay. Is whether or not they can do that. And then they also weighed and measured the people. They took their blood pressure. They tested their blood glucose levels. Just a very quick, basic medical exam. Right. And then they waited seven years. Okay. And they waited to see if the participants died and that was it they just okay waited some time and figured out who died and who didn't it's a pretty easy um final sample to get i guess it, it really is <laughs> um there was actually a lot of care and attention put into figuring out if people were still alive or not um there was all this worry about underreporting of deaths if people lived in cities versus di- didn't live in cities right. like would their deaths be reported more or less there was a lot of lot of care and attention put into that so Essentially, they looked at death rates and they attempted to adjust for all of these other health factors. Exactly as you said, they tried to take out the effects of socioeconomic status and other sort of health and lifestyle choices. Right. And just get to what they thought was sort of the the key variable, Hmm. consumption of spicy food. Okay, cool. And they looked at this in terms of deaths per thousand people. Right. So for every thousand people, how many people died over the course of the study? So for the group of people who ate spicy food less than once per week, out of 1,000 people, 6.1 of them died. Okay. Out of the people who ate spicy food one or two days per week, Mm -hmm. 4.4 of them died. Okay. Of the people who ate spicy food three to five days per week, Mm -hmm. 4.3 of them died. So we're getting lower and lower. Interesting. And of the people who ate spicy food six to seven days per week, yeah, well, it does go up a little bit. 5.8 of them died. Okay. But the big message the researchers are pushing here is... The difference, not between the maximum people, but the people who ate spicy food less than once or all of the time. Yeah. There was a 14% relative risk reduction in total mortality. Okay, interesting. Which is not nothing. No, that's that's yeah. statistically that's significant the, for sure. That's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, so that's... Like, that's sort of beyond... that. Yeah, that's really significant. So what's the catch? So I tried to find the catch. (laughs) And I'm not saying there is one. Yeah. And I'm not saying there isn't one. But this is a very large study, which is a good sign. Mm -hmm. But it's also a very crude study. How so? It's one survey Mm -hmm. and whether or not they died. Right. Are really only data. They did look at how people died. And they found that in the main categories, the main categories were cancer, heart disease, and respiratory diseases. They found these reductions were present across all of them. 
Right. Right. So it's not that spice seems to be protecting from one cause of death. It seems to be overall. Interesting. Uh, although they did find the reductions were greatest amongst people who used fresh chili as their source of spice. That, not dried or oil. That goes along with generally what we know about nutrition. That generally yeah. the fresh version of something contains more nutrients. And exactly. So something effect. like that, there could be a confounding factor of if you eat fresh chili, maybe you eat fresh other foods as well. Right. Right. There's so many so, variables to control for there. There are so right. many variables, which is kind of the problem here, which is that diet studies are so difficult to conduct in a controlled manner. Mm-hmm. It all depends on how well you adjust for other factors. Right. And I mean, the researchers do discuss a number of them, which is that like spicy diets are often overall very different than non-spicy diets. Right. Like the different types of meals, you mean? The different types of meals. For example, if you eat spicy food, you're also going to eat more carbs. Because you want to you want to account for the spiciness. You want to eat some rice to account for that. Right. They also found that in Chinese cuisine, spicy food was considerably higher in oil content. That makes sense. The non-spicy food. Okay. Um, and I mean, the other thing about China is, <laughs> from a very North American perspective, Chinese food is Chinese food. Right. But you go to China, there are so many different cuisines hmm. throughout China, and they are very, very different in what's in them, the nutritional values of them, and they're also different in spice content. If right. you're in Sichuan versus Shanghai, you're going to have very different levels of average spice in that. Right. So it could also be a geographic issue because they try to get people from all over China, which can be good, but it's also hard to account for the other influences in this cuisine. That's so interesting. Yeah, or it could even be an urban versus rural difference. Right. Right? The sort of huh. food you eat in a city is not the same as the food you eat in a country. That's very so cool. So it's, it's so hard to adjust for. But having said all that, there are some previous studies that have suggested that capsicum, the active ingredient in hot peppers, the thing that causes it to be spicy, has some health benefits. Hmm. It's been linked to lower incidences of cancer. It's been linked to lower rates of obesity, um, which is actually a really interesting one because kind of the theory behind that is if you're eating spicy food, you're going to eat less of it <laughs> because your mouth's on fire, right. so you're not going to eat as much food. <laughs> that's so. That's interesting. And an interesting link, which they think is very promising, but they know very little about, is it's been linked to effects on populations of gut microbes. Okay. Which is this emerging field of research, which could be linked to all sorts of different health issues. Right. I mean, just just earlier in this episode, we talk about 90% of the serotonin in your body is in your gut. Right. That could have a lot of effects on different things. Oh, man. So this is a, I mean, it's a really fascinating study. It's awesome because of its huge sample size. Right. But what I take away from this is I think you need to be cautious. That this is not a study that tells you eating spicy food is good for you. Mm-hmm. It's a study that tells scientists that this is something we really need to look into and figure out a causal mechanism. Right. So it's definitely like a, a good sort of flag that we've planted and say, okay, let's look here, dig here. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely an area we need to dig in. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, mm-hmm. but I don't think this is saying you should eat lots of spicy food because you will live longer if you do. Right. Huh. Very interesting. It is, isn't it? Huh. Yeah, I want I want more research on that right now. Anything about about longevity and long term health. I agree. But I mean, there's thankfully there's a ton of money in that. So it's it the is. kind of it's thing true. that gets researched pretty heavily. Yeah, these researchers were thinking of applications in terms of health supplements right. that could incorporate capsicum and hmm. ingredients like that, which actually might be a very good way to study something like this is to do a long term study with just the active ingredient in very controlled doses right across people with a wide variety of diets and then try to control for the other factors interesting yeah so just because this is something that often comes up when we hit one of these correlation causation things i'm curious what your thoughts yeah. are on this so 
since there's a pretty significant difference between, even if it's just correlation, there's a pretty significant difference mm-hmm. in terms of the the not dying and having spicy foods, right? Yeah. So does that mean that it's at least somewhat safe to say that if you look at how the lifestyle of people who eat spicy foods in China, that that lifestyle mm-hmm. could in some way be associated with longer life? Well, that's exactly the question that we now need to get at. Right. We need to figure out if these people are living longer because they've got this, you know, input of capsicum to their bodies, mm-hmm. or if there's something else in their lifestyle which right. is linked to that. Cool. So let's wait for the capsicum-specific study then, where we give that as a I supplement. Think so. Yeah. I think that's the that's the key. Cool. That's really neat. Yeah. It's a, it seems like a good, easy follow-up study, actually. It does. I'm actually not sure what's being done in that area, if right. it has been done or not. But, hmm. and it, it, the other thing is, like, you'd need a lot of people taking it, and you need a very long-term study, mm-hmm. right? Because you need, that study would need to be longer-term than this one, because this study looked at people who have this lifestyle and have had this lifestyle for their entire lives right. of eating spicy food, and then whether or not they die in a period of seven years. It's not that that period of seven years, which this study took, was giving them capsicum for seven years. Right. Yeah. You would need a wow. you'd need something very long term for that. Yeah, well, yeah. hopefully that gets started soon. That's really cool, Lucas. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Well, thanks for listening to those two stories. It's all we got for you this week, but we do have links to all the studies we discussed in our show notes. You can find those at doubleblindscience.com. We hope you've enjoyed our adventure into this week's science news. Check back next week and we'll have two brand new exciting stories for you. Do you have a story that you want to hear on our show? Let us know. Stories at doubleblindscience.com. Or if you want more from us, follow us on Twitter at double blind SCI or like us on Facebook. Cool. See you next week. Take care. Yeah. Well, these guys were thinking, um, guys, I should, I should not use that male normative term when it comes to researchers. These researchers. <laughs> <laughs>